from The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, a story about black land ownership, starting in Piney Woods, North Carolina, one of the oldest examples of uninterrupted land ownership by black people. Cameron Oglesby has that report. But first, the midterms are next week. Steve Phillips has the big picture of what it takes for Democrats to win those swing states. That's coming up in a minute. How do we win the midterms? How can we save democracy from white nationalism and right-wing authoritarianism? For that, we turn to Steve Phillips. He wrote the bestseller, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. He hosts the podcast, Democracy in Color, and he writes for The Nation and The Guardian. His new book, just published, is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and ending white supremacy for good. We reached him today in San Francisco. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, glad to be here. One week to go and too many of the key races, especially for senators and governors are too close. At least that's what the polls say. Maybe the polls are wrong, but let's take a step back to see the big picture here. What kind of fight are we in right now? Well, we're in a big one, and we're, we're, we're still in a big one. The Confederates and their ideological and political and in some ways genealogical heirs have never stopped fighting the Civil War. When the, the New Press approached me about writing another book, I kind of suggested using the Civil War as a metaphor to frame up this political moment. This was in uh, April of 2020. Months later, people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing sweatshirts saying MAGA Civil War, January uh, 6, 2021, stormed the United States Capitol, hunted down our elected officials, and tried to block the peaceful transfer of power. And I'm like, well, this is not so uh, uh, metaphorical anymore. <laughs> right. And so we are quite literally remaining in a battle. I, the intro to my book, that I title it, A Choice Between Democracy and Whiteness. And that's drawn from a quote by uh, the historian Taylor Branch, who was talking with Isabel Wilkerson in her book about the rise of white domestic terrorism under Trump and how that that being a backlash to the demographic revolution. He says that people said they would not stand for being a minority in their own country. The question is, if we offer them a choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And Wilkerson says, we let that hang in the air, neither of us willing to hazard a guess. And that's what, we, that's what happened on January 6th, is they had the most pro-white nationalist president we've had in a long time. And then facing off against democracy, where all 50 governors in the state and in the, in the country, Republican and Democrat, had certified the election results. And yet people stormed the United States Capitol to overthrow the democratic peaceful transfer of power to keep that white nationalist man in the White House. And that remains the fight that we're facing. And that in many ways is are the stakes for the midterms. And those are also the stakes heading towards 2024. So how can we defeat the people who want to make America a white nation? Let's, let's remember what we achieved in 2020. Trump was defeated. Democrats took control of Congress. How did we do this? What did it take? The essence of, of the fight really does come down to democracy and voting and electoral participation, which the Republicans actually understand far better in terms of the threat that that poses by the amount of time, energy, and resources they devote to voter suppression. 
So after Obama was elected, there's a whole wave of voter suppression legislation, voter ID laws to try to stop that from happening again. And then after the Democrats ousted Trump in 2020 and took control of the Senate in 2021, there's another whole wave of voter suppression legislation. But the way that they were defeated is by maximizing and mobilizing the new American majority. The vast majority of people of color in alliance with what I call the meaningful minority of whites who are progressive are a majority of people in this country. And if we get that population out to the polls, we win. And when there has been large turnout, Democrats have won. Every presidential election since 1992, with the sole exception of 2004, the Democratic nominee has gotten the most votes. And so that's a very strong data set that there is a majority who supports the democratic vision, the multiracial, multicultural vision of the country, rather than as a white nationalist nation. But you have to get people to the polls. But that's what happened in 2020. There was massive turnout. Joe Biden got more votes than anybody who's ever run for president in the history of this country. And that's what enabled Democrats to oust Trump and flip Georgia and Arizona as well. Let's talk about Georgia and Arizona. Let's start with Georgia. Let's start with Stacey Abrams. Let's start by acknowledging what Stacey Abrams achieved in Georgia over the last decade. Georgia voted for the Democrat for president for the first time since Bill Clinton in 92. Georgia, let us remember, elected two Democrats to the Senate, saved Congress for the Democrats in in 2020. All that happened because, well, because of exactly what? Because of the vision and wisdom and tenacity of Stacey Abrams. And so that's one of the cornerstone chapters of my book where I offer uh, case studies of how we, in fact, win in places that were formerly part of the Confederacy. I mean, Georgia is where Gone with the Wind is set (laughs) in terms of its centrality in this country. I met Stacey Abrams 11 years ago, and she had this... 35-page PowerPoint plan for how she was going to flip Georgia. She said at that time, we lose in Georgia by about 200,000 votes on average in each election statewide. There are a million and a half eligible non-voting people of color. I'm going to go register them. And she said about that work, she created New Georgia Project. She got Nakima Williams to be the chair of the Georgia Democratic Party. And they have steadily and methodically registered, organized, and mobilized voters under the radar and without the support of many people at the top levels of national politics. I titled my Georgia chapter, Georgia, that's not one we expected, which Mm. is what Joe Biden said on election night as he was going through, says, we're ahead in Georgia. That's not one we expected because they hadn't seen what Stacey was doing and they hadn't invested in that work. But she brought about, she created the infrastructure, hired the, got people hired to community level strengthen the organizations, to maximize the turnout of the new American majority in Georgia. And that's what enabled Biden to win that state. And that's what enabled the uh, uh, Warnock and Ossoff to win those seats and to flip control of the entire United States Senate. So right now, one week before Election Day, the polls in Georgia say that Reverend Raphael Warnock is ahead of Herschel Walker, but not by a lot. And the polls say the odds are that Brian Kemp is going to beat Stacey Abrams for governor. What do you say? I say it's all going to be about voter turnout again. Who does a better job of getting their voters out? And then who does a better job of stopping our voters from coming to the polls? And that's (laughs) really what the battle is going to be in Georgia. 
I think it's going to be super close on both levels. But even fundamentally, just thinking about this today is that the fact that Herschel Walker is even competitive speaks volumes about the absence of criteria and values and uh, intellectual integrity in terms of the much of the voting electorate within Georgia. This man not only has no credentials at all in terms of public life, in terms and no expressed interest in the issues that the that the government faces. On top of that, he's a clear uh, a domestic violence perpetrator who held a gun to his wife's head, who is a, a hypocrite and is moralizing and has fathered multiple children and encouraged different people to have abortions. And yet he's still competitive. And so what does that say about the electorate in Georgia? It's a reflection of just how high that mountain is. But we are very, very close, and it's going to be a very, very close election. Now, I have one critique of the polling in Georgia and everywhere else, but especially Georgia. What the polls measure is what they call likely voters. How do you define a likely voter? It's somebody basically who's voted, who votes regularly, especially in the midterm four years ago. But of course, Stacey Abrams' whole project is to get people to vote who have not voted four years ago or, or two years ago. So I wonder if the polls could be missing the new voters who have been mobilized by the New Georgia Project and its other organizations around the country. Yes, by definition, they missed them. So the, the, the definition of a likely voter is somebody who has voted frequently in the past. And the whole cornerstone of what the work that the Georgia progressive movement is doing is bringing out new voters and unlikely voters. But that, through the screening process of the pollsters, they don't look at those 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 people. And the, the dominant question is, I didn't even realize how much things had actually changed. So the Kemp won in 2018 about 54,000 votes. There are 1.6 million new voters in Georgia since 2018. And so that is a very profound reality, which is why they passed the voter suppression law in in 2021. And that's what will determine uh, where we're at in terms of who actually prevails uh, in Georgia. The second state you mentioned was Arizona. We also need to know the lessons of what it took to win in Arizona. Of course, Arizona was the state that finally put Biden over the top in 2020. And let's remember a little of the history there. Arizona was Barry Goldwater country. It was the birthplace of uh, of the new right. In Arizona right now, the Republicans are running election deniers for both governor and senator. And right now the polls show Democrat Mark Kelly is ahead of Republican Blake Masters. But in the Arizona governor's race, the very frightening Trumper Carrie Lake is ahead of the Democrat Katie Dobbs. Obama was there just Monday this week. You say one of the key architects of the organization that defeated Trump in Arizona was a man named John Laredo. I never heard of John Laredo. Who is he and what has he done? John was the head of the state Senate in the early 2000s. He is a protege of Cesar Chavez in terms of the in terms of having roots within the Latino movement and organizing and activism in that regard. And he's a, a behind the scenes leader of the different parts of the coalition um, within Arizona. Or is a network of uh, community based organizations called One Arizona. There's a 
activist network called Arizona Winds, and he's been part of helping get all those entities created. And so he called together all these groupings over a decade ago, and he asked, he says, who's hard of getting their asses kicked? <laughs> and so do we want to come together, make a common plan, work together over a number of years? And that's the work that led to the creation of organizations such as uh, Lucha and other community-based organizations that have registered and brought into the uh, the electorate hundreds of thousands of Latino voters. And that was the foundation, as well as other voters of color, the, the Native Americans as well. Arizona is one of the largest Native American populations in the country per state. The increase in Native American voters from 2016 to 2020 was larger than Biden's margin of victory. And so that's the foundation, that increased Latino vote, the increased voters of color that propelled um, Biden to that victory and that propelled um, Mark Kelly. So that'll be determining who wins in 20, uh, 2022. So I, I learned from your book, uh, How We Win, uh, turnout for Latinos in Arizona from 2016 to 2020 increased from 34%, a terrible number, to 45%, really a huge increase. But the turnout for whites was much bigger. And of course, whites have been winning a lot of statewide uh, offices there. This looks bad to me, but you say it's actually very promising in the long term. Please explain why. It's because there's so much more upside to go. And so that it's gone from you know the low 30s to the low 40s, but if the whites are already at, at 70%, imagine if you get 75% of eligible Latinos to vote, it makes the electorate that much more progressive and that much more favorable. And so that's one of the key variables to look at in Arizona as well as other, as well as in places like Texas, right? When uh, uh, Trump won Texas by 600,000 votes, there were 4 million eligible non-voting people of color in Texas. I want to talk about Texas because Texas demographically is quite similar to California. Same proportion of Latinos, 40%. But California is totally blue in statewide elections and Texas is totally red in statewide elections. How do you explain this difference and, and who's doing the best work to change Texas? It has to do with voter turnout and voter participation. And again, voter suppression uh, is much more rampant in Texas and there's less investment in the infrastructure around funding the groups and the work that is working in the communities to turn out the vote. So groups like Texas Organizing Project is doing heroic work and they've been very successful in flipping entirely, largely, uh, Harris County, which was formerly Republican held to where most of the offices held now in Harris County. And Harris County is larger than many states are held by Democrats. And that's because of this work of transforming the composition of the electorate. But top has a budget, Texas Organizing Project was around, you know, 5 million or so. They should have a budget around 30 or 40 million if you really want to transform the state of Texas. And so California has had more infrastructure and investment in its groups, as well as there was a stronger backlash when there was the whole anti-immigrant efforts in uh, the early 90s. Uh, and that led many Latinos to register and participate in the electoral process that changed the composition of the electorate in California. Finally, your, your emphasis in your book, uh, How We Win the Civil War, is we need to focus on long-term organizing and we need to focus on data-driven organizing. So 2022 is going to be one data point. It's not going to be the last one. Right. And, 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 and absolutely. So Stacey Abrams wrote a long piece in the New York Times about how to turn your red state blue. 
and she did this after the 2020 election. She says, it may take 10 years, but we should do it anyways. All of the case studies in my book, I have five case studies, each of them had 10-year journeys where you had the same leadership, the same organizations carrying out that fight. And so 2022 midterms was one point on this uh, a journey, but we're going to, we keep going. We're heading immediately to 2024 election where they also will be larger turnouts. So whatever happens in the midterms that we have to continue to fight that fight to 2024, but we have to play the long game, which is what the conservatives and the neo-confederates have been doing, but the trends are in our favor and in our, in our direction. And so if we hold to that and continue to invest in transforming this population majority into a voting majority, we really should build political power and win and be able to transform much of this country. Steve Phillips, you can read his piece at thenation.com, Civil War Isn't on the Horizon, The Original Battle Never Ended. His new book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Piney Woods, North Carolina, is one of the oldest examples of uninterrupted land ownership by black people. It's been an economically independent and free community of blacks and indigenous people going back well before the Civil War. Blacks have held onto their land in Piney Woods, which makes that community an exception to historical patterns. For that story, we turn to Cameron Oglesby. She's an environmental justice advocate, ecologist, oral historian, and award-winning journalist a Master of Public Policy candidate at Duke, a Memorial Foundation Social Justice Fellow, and a Yale Public Voices Fellow on the Climate Crisis. Her writing has appeared in Earth in Color, Grist, Southerly, Scalawag, and Environmental Health News. And she's a member of the editorial team at The Margin, a platform focused on environmental justice storytelling. We reached her today in Durham, Cameron Oglesby, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II and his family come from Piney Woods. Of course, he's co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and the architect of Moral Mondays, and he writes for The Nation about the Southern Movement for Racial Justice. You recently went to Piney Woods for a celebration of place, which included the Reverend Barber's son, William Barber III, Tell us about that celebration. Yes. So in May, I had the opportunity to go down to Piney Woods. It's about two hours from where I'm located in Durham, North Carolina. Heading into the celebration, one of the first things I noticed was the warmth. And I don't mean the physical warmth. It was a weirdly hot day in spring, honestly, but I'm, I mean more the happiness of this community. There was good food and great conversations. And as I was walking up, I actually remember I was greeted by a distant cousin of the barbers named Job. He was an older gentleman who didn't realize I wasn't a part of the family and who I ultimately sat in conversation with. Um, he told me about how he had grown up on the property, how he lived in the house right next door to the Vera Brown big house. And he told me about growing up with his twin brother on the property, climbing the pecan trees and eating from what was ultimately very giving land. 
and he he told me about his mother, um, endearingly called Sugar Pie James, <laughs> and how yes, and how she would make cheese biscuits in the big house for him after a long day of play. Um, I was given a tour of the property by some more distant relatives of William Barber III. I actually did very little interacting with William Barber III at that event. I was talking to all of his family members. Um, these were Michelle and Ben James Jr. They were so excited to talk about the land, what it once looked like, what the family property had meant historically and currently to the community. And they were the ones who, who reminisced on um, their childhood playing sports, all manner of sports on the property and jumping off of the massive barn with, with sheet parachutes, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, doing very dangerous things for children. So ultimately, I just want to, I want to point out that the celebration was so amazingly simple. The people were so connected. People were so pleased to be able to share their story with me. There was such a connection to the land. It was such a source of pride for them. And ultimately, when William Barber III and his team, as well as Reverend William Barber II, took to the front to explain what the project was, what the work was that needed doing to make sure the land remained prosperous and in family hands, the amens and the yeses were extremely loud. Really an honor to be able to attend and commune in this community so filled with Black joy. What do we know about Black land loss since the early 20th century? Countrywide, Black farm ownership has declined by about 98% through the Ooh. 20th century. Yeah, it's, it's believed that land ownership in Acres owned peaked around 1910, 1920, and has steadily declined from there. So today it's approximated that around 1.3 to 1.4% of farmers in this country are Black. And recent research has placed the numerical losses, the financial losses from Black land loss in this country at a conservative estimate of $326 billion and a high of about $359 billion with a B. And what do we know about the causes of this decline in Black land ownership? So there, there have been a number of contributing factors to this environmental justice issue of Black land loss in this country. During Reconstruction, many Black people in the South were violently forced off of their land. Those who were not forced might have left to escape the harm of the Jim Crow South as a whole. And others were eventually pushed out due to discriminatory lending practices. This was banks and the USDA less likely, they were less likely to give Black farmers loans. Even my own family, I just want to highlight in Maryland, speaks to this time period where they had to make do with jerry-rigged equipment and supplies just to make it through the growing seasons because they couldn't get these loans. They didn't have access to this financial support from the government. The issues are vast, whether it's heirs, property disputes, where Black people, for a lack of trust in government, a, a valid lack in trust in government, were not writing wills and thus not following legal means of passing down ownership of property, or as we highlight in the article, farm consolidation, which is this general push and investment in big farming operations, concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs, which monopolized the agriculture industry to the detriment of small family farms and black farmers. And how have the Barber family in their community been able to hold onto their land when so many other Black people were losing theirs? Barbara III and his family have been really lucky. 
he believes that the relative seclusion of Piney Woods in deep rural country in the floodplains of North Carolina allowed them to survive and operate without exploitation. He, he referred to them as a hidden gem. People couldn't find them. They were secluded. They were out there on their own, isolated from the rest of the, the exploitation or the, the issues that were that Black farmers and landowners were contending with over the decades. That combined with the tri-racial nature of the community meant that um, oftentimes the Piney Woods community was operating in these liminal spaces between white and black. So these were people who could navigate into spaces of white supremacy, perhaps they were a bit more white passing without fear of violence. And um, I also wanna note that a few in William's family highlighted to me just how marvelous a force some of the original landholders were. I think that was a critical part of their ability to generate wealth and to remain isolated and independent. These were imposing figures, immovable figures. They dominated the agriculture game in that part of the region in spite of the racism. And this dominance allowed the community a level of independence from outside sources, including the government. I think that this sense of pride that community members have in their ancestry and in the family land is an important additional factor that kept the land in the family. You say in your piece at thenation.com, land ownership is about much more than farming. What exactly do you mean? I love this question. Land ownership is wealth at its, at, at its basest form. To own land in the United States is to have a source of income, shelter, a source of wealth generation in the appreciation of that land and its value over time. It is something that can be passed down as many times to as many generations as you like. It transcends time in a sense. It is something that builds cultures. It grounds us in our ancestries. It grounds us in an appreciation for nature, for wildlife, for mother earth. To own land and to take care of land is a character in and of itself. Um, but as I was writing this piece, I drew connection and a bit of inspiration from a reading I had to do for another job that I have at the creative studio, Earth and Color. At the time I was reading a, a portion of Bell Hooks's book, Belonging, her chapter on touching the earth. And there, was a, there were a couple of quotes. The first one, living in modern society without a sense of history, it has been easy for folks to forget that black people were first and foremost people of the land. As she highlights, Recalling the legacy of our ancestors who knew that the way we regard land and nature will determine the level of our self-regard, Black people must reclaim a spiritual legacy where we, can, we connect our well-being to the well-being of the earth. What she's describing here is what William Barber III is doing with his family land in Piney Woods by creating a sustainability hub out there. And tell us more about the three generation of barbers and their relationship specifically to Piney Woods, and especially about the youngest, William Barber III, who I learned from your piece is an activist and an organizer too. Yes, I, I actually, I find this question extremely funny that more people haven't heard of William Barber III. He is a force in and of himself. I, I heard of him, if I'm being honest, before I heard of his father, and his father is very famous. Um, <laughs> But, but starting us off, and I'm going to try to keep this brief, there's a lot to say uh, about 
the the three generations of barbers and even the 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 family going back several more generations further than them but um really quickly i think sorry give me a second so starting with william barber senior it is my understanding that he returned home to piney woods to have an impact on the community as we highlight in the article william barber senior helped with the integration of public schools in martin and washington counties which is where piney woods is located what we don't highlight in the article is that Barber Sr. and his wife and his young son, who would become the Reverend William Barber II, were living in Indiana outside of the Jim Crow South when he ultimately received the call to serve his community back home. So he took his young son out of an already integrated school and into the lion's den, so to speak, in order to ensure that the young people in his home community, in his ancestral community, could receive a proper education. It's my understanding this is not the only thing that he has done around civil rights in Piney Woods and in North Carolina at large, but perhaps most notably in the research I've been doing and the work I've been doing on this article with William Barber III is highlighting the book that William Barber Sr. wrote, The Disciple Assemblies of Eastern North Carolina, which sort of documents the, the critical development of the Black church and Black church culture in North Carolina um, the book is a bit difficult to get your hands on. I actually had to go to the Library of Congress to, <laughs> to get a copy that was intact um, and clean for reference. But I know that the family hopes to recirculate the book in the near future. And ultimately, it highlights the ways in which Piney Woods Free Union, this community served as the, the starting point, the mother church for a conclave of now very big Black churches across, across the state. And how, you know, understanding that the, the Black church through all of U.S. history has served as a critical civil rights activist point and center point and landmark for this sort of movement building. We've seen that with the environmental justice movement, and which was birthed in, in Warren County in eastern North Carolina literally 40 years ago now. It's the 40th anniversary of the movement this year with steep ties to the church, the civil rights movement, steep ties to church culture and activism. Since I'm sure a lot of you have already heard of Re Reverend William Barber II, I'll move forward to his son, William Barber III. Um, again, I have to laugh at this idea that people haven't heard of him already. I first met him at a climate rally at Duke when I was an undergrad and have since worked with him on numerous collaborations and projects. Um, and despite inheriting his father's and his grandfather's name, he is his own force. He is, he, he is a, an extremely prominent environmental justice advocate in North Carolina. I just have to give him his flowers here really quickly. Um, so some of his titles we mentioned in the article, he's the founder of the Rural Beacon Initiative, which focuses on community relationship building and grassroots organizing to sort of bridge these gaps in climate, uh, clean energy access in disadvantaged communities. He is also, also a chief consultant for, of environmental justice at the Coalition for Green Capital, which does a very similar thing for uh, black and brown communities in the South. We didn't mention that he's also the director of climate and environmental justice for the Climate Reality Project, or that he is a member of the North Carolina Department of Environmental Qualities, Environmental Justice and Equity Board, or that he's the co-chair of the North Carolina Poor People's Campaign's Ecological Devastation Committee, and so on and so on. He has a lot more titles. So. Although William didn't grow up in Piney Woods, I want to highlight this. He, he has very much drawn inspiration from his grandfather's work, from his father's work, 
from Piney Woods as a centerpiece for civil rights and Black culture. And, and that has shown itself in his many titles as an environmental justice advocate in the state. Um, I know that he is highlighted in the same way that his grandfather returned home to Piney Woods to make change. William Barber III is returning to his ancestral land to rebuild the prosperous legacy of Piney Woods for Union and the Vera Brown Farm. Will you end your report for thenation.com with the story of the Free Union Farms Hub, which you say can serve as a model for the cultural and environmental preservation of Black rural communities. How does the Free Union Farms Hub work? So the Free Union Farms Hub is a sustainability and regenerative agriculture hub that will be located on approximately 52 acres of the Vera Brown Farm property. It is a partnership between the Rural Beacon Initiative and organizations and financers such as the Food Shed Capital, the Croatan Institute, the Alliance for Native Seed Keepers, and Slow Money NC. Um, the, the larger goal is to develop a model for a sustainable, community-centered, resilient economic development in the South, and specifically for struggling Black landowners and communities facing these patterns of systemic land loss and industry encroachment. The project will combine regenerative animal agroforestry, sustainable agroforestry, regenerative agriculture, and the placement of renewable energy like solar panels to create an extremely productive community landmark through the preservation of existing pine tree structures and the pecan forests that uh, that some of the, the relatives have uh, spent their childhood climbing on by making use of those existing structures, but also developing partnerships with local seed keepers, growers, indigenous gardeners, the project will generate revenue for the community in a manner that keeps the land in community hands while simultaneously replenishing the earth. I want to add a really big piece here. I think it's important. We're, we're highlighting the, the climate, the climate combating aspects. We're highlighting the clean energy aspects. We're highlighting the access and the retention of land ownership. But it's also a matter of making sure this story of Piney Woods Free Union does not die, does not go away as people get older. So the Rural Beacon Initiative hopes to transform the Vera Brown Farm Big House into a site for history preservation, a culture center or a museum center of sorts that will preserve the story of this community to educate people outside of the community on the Piney Woods legacy. If I can put a quick plug in here, I'm actually, I've been working with William Barber III outside of my capacity as a journalist and in my capacity as a Duke student to collect these oral histories, to collect oral histories of environmental justice, of Piney Woods community members' experiences on this land, much like the people I mentioned earlier, Job and Michelle and Ben James Jr., who spoke very pleasantly and honestly and openly about the love they have of this land. I'll be working with him and several other students through a project I'm creating called the Environmental Justice Oral History Project to house oral histories of this community in that museum site as a part of the Free Union, Free Union Farms Hub there, but also outside of Piney Woods to make sure there is a permanent home for these stories so that people might never forget such a place where Black joy and Black wealth creation existed in this country. Cameron Oglesby wrote for thenation.com about rebuilding the homestead. 
Her piece was published in a collaboration between The Nation and The Margin, a nonprofit journalism site dedicated to stories about environmental justice. Cameron, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for listening. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 